podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Well, Christ is risen. Amen. Um, I have... I also have a uh, preliminary, not announcement, but I do just want to make mention uh, that the Duncans are not here today, and if you are on Facebook, you may have seen that this weekend they were in a really, really bad car accident uh, going to Texas on Saturday, or on Friday, but I do want to let you know that they are well. Um, No one was injured. If you have a Facebook account, get on there and see how wild and what a miracle that is. Um, I won't tell the whole story. Pastor Jade will probably mention it next week, but I want to let you know that they are well. They were scheduled to be on vacation this Sunday anyways. And then, of course, after a traumatic event like that, it's just best um, that they're not here. But I do want us to keep them in our prayers, specifically the kids, because after something traumatic happens, as surely many of you know, um, it takes time and, and it kind of we see in our lives that things begin to unravel, not that our lives unravel, but that the trauma is affecting us in ways that we didn't really know. And and all four kids were with them. So we want to cover their kids and pray for them that they would be able to process it in a healthy and a healthy way um, that it wouldn't have long-term effects on them. Because when you see the pictures, the accident was, it was very rough. So we're very grateful, of course, that the Duncans are well. They are not here because they're in the hospital or anything, um, but uh, that that is a traumatic event. So we want to keep them in our prayers, particularly the kids. And then also there is much that needs to be replaced, including the vehicle, phones, things like that. So we'll just pray for grace on them in the coming weeks, okay? Um... The passage I am speaking from this morning is, it's a beautiful and sobering passage, Isaiah 55. Um, I have a lot of time, but I'm going to do my best to shorten it because the summer team that is going to Eswatini is selling chili after this for $5 a person. So maybe we can get out a little bit early. We can go from one table to the next. And uh, you see... uh, uh, yeah, that's it. That's it. All right, I'm going to sit down now. No, but if we can get out a little bit early, maybe that will encourage more of you to be able to participate in having lunch together. Like I said, it's it's $5 a person for chili and cornbread, and we'd love to sell out. We'd love to all be hungry after this, although the, the message this morning is about not being hungry. So we'll see how this all pieces together. Um, we've already prayed a bunch, but I, I want to pray just because there is, uh, there's a lot of my heart to share, and I'm not, I don't think I should share all of it. So we're going to pray that I'll have the, the grace to share what needs to be said. Lord, we thank you for setting apart a place and a time and a space for your people to come and receive gifts from you and to give gifts back to you and to give gifts to one another. Gifts of encouragement and gifts of love and kindness and mercy. And of course, the gifts that we give back to you are gifts of worship. And I pray this morning uh, that as we sit under the proclamation of the gospel, that it would be exactly that, that this would not just be expositing scripture, but that this would be truly proclaiming the good news 
that we have been engrafted into the family of the almighty living God through the work of Jesus Christ and that your spirit is with us, that your spirit is empowering us and moving on us to do the work that you have called us and empowered us to do in this city. In Christ's name, amen. So this is one of the most beautiful passages of all of the Old Testament, really. Um, Of course, that's an opinionated statement, but I think you'll agree with me once we get into this. So a a quick three-minute history lesson, and then I'm going to do my best to preach the gospel to you quickly. So the book of Isaiah, as we know it, is 66 chapters. But historically, the book of Isaiah is actually three books. So 1 through 39, when we refer to the prophet Isaiah, the one that we read about in Isaiah 6, who sees the Lord seated on the throne, um, scholars typically believe that that Isaiah, that that figure wrote the book of what they call 1st Isaiah, which is chapters 1 through 39. And then most scholars believe that chapters 40 through 45 were at 55, 40 through 55, 16 chapters, were actually written at a very different time by a different person. And then there is the third book of Isaiah, which we don't call it that. Remember, for us, this is all the book of Isaiah. But contextually, this really matters that then chapters 56 through 66 is actually written by someone else at a much later time. So the first book of Isaiah was written before the exile. And then toward the end of the exile, while the people of Israel were in exile, the the appeal, it is really one long appeal from chapters 40 to 55 was written during that time period. And then starting in chapter 56 to the end of the book was written after the exile. And the reason this matters is because Context is everything, especially in the Old Testament and especially in the prophets. So when we read these passages, the more that we can understand about the position of the people of God, the more that we will be able to identify and the more that hopefully we can hear the Lord speaking to us. If you put a long pause after a phrase, it just makes it really preachy. It's beautiful. Yeah. <clears throat> but also, I did need to swallow. So it wasn't just a ploy to get your applause or your whatever. Um, so I think what we see here in this chapter, so this is the last chapter of our, our little history lesson, right? So now we're all equipped to read the book of Isaiah just a little bit more faithfully. So this is the last chapter of the second part of Isaiah. So the people of Israel are now in captivity, but they're not in captivity in the same way that they were before the Exodus. They're not slaves so much as they're exiles who have now become part of the community, which is now the Persian community in Babylon. And they're did that go up? Okay, it's back in. They're beginning to flourish. And, and so they're in captivity. They're no longer in Israel. They're, but they are in exile. So in which the, the way that they are living into the promises of God has almost kind of gone by the wayside. Because to them, they believed that upon going into exile, it was because of their sin. And essentially, by this time, they've kind of come to terms with, we sinned, we are now in exile, and then surely God is going to do something else. Like we, we kind of missed our opportunity, but now we're thriving in this other space, so God has probably changed his mind. But in chapters 40 to 55, we read the appeal that God, through the prophet, is making to his people saying, no, I haven't changed my mind. I haven't gone back on my prophecy." 
promises. Yes, you messed up, but I'm the God that delights in making and bringing goodness from the mistakes that my people make. And it's really in these chapters that we see the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and the pardon of God. We see an invitation. Really, chapters 40 through 55 is a really long invitation. And here we are at the end of chapter 55, and we're reading perhaps the most beautiful part of the invitation. So I'd like to put this on the screen. We're going to read the entire chapter today, but we're going to start with verses 1 through 5. So, uh, Denise, thank you. Yep. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Note the, the irony there. Come and buy something for free. So why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. So let's stop right there. So a little bit more context, and then I'm going to preach this. So it was ancient tradition that when a new king came into a land or assumed the throne, that a king would throw a big banquet for as many people under his kingdom as possible. And it was kind of a, it was a significant moment of this is a new season and the kings that really wanted to appeal to the people, they would pardon. They would pardon all of the debts. They would pardon, especially and particularly, anyone who owed anything to the king or to the kingdom. And it was an appeal to win people over. So there is some language in here about feasting and eating, but the people are still in captivity. And this is, this is one of the ironies that kind of runs throughout scripture is that you'll see prophets and then you see Christ making these awesome declarations, but the circumstances around the people don't really seem to be any different. And so you have the people learning to wrestle with what it is to follow a living God, what it is to follow this God whose ways as we're going to read later on, are not our ways and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so God is making, through this prophet, is making an appeal to the people to come and to receive from him water, bread, wine, and milk. There's four things, and we'll kind of dive into those a little bit and maybe some of the significance. But what's most significant is that God is saying, come and buy these things, and oh, by the way, they're free. And if you don't have any money, that's okay, because I, your money is nothing to me anyways. And I really want to focus and hone in on the economy of God this morning. I think the simple gospel to those of us who live fairly comfortable lives in America can almost become something that we can, we can spit it out and we can say the gospel without realizing how radical it is and how radical it would sound like if we went to the prison here in, uh, there's a prison down southwest of here, I forget which town it is, uh, there's a big prison. If we went down to the prison and all of those who are imprisoned for life, if we preach the gospel to them, 
it would mean something radically different than it means for those of us who, most of us in the room, we may have needs. I mean, we all have some kind of need. But if you're desperate and you don't have any money or any means of fixing your situation, then an offer like this really is something much more significant. So I want us to ponder this economy that the God that we serve operates in an economy that is totally different than all of the economies of the world. So go with me for a minute, just on a little mental economics trip, that all of the kingdoms of this world, all of the empires, all of the nations, there are all kinds of different economies from radical communism and socialism all the way to capital free, radical free markets. And all of the economies of this world that fall anywhere on that spectrum operate on supply and demand in some level. All of the economies of this earth operate on scarcity, that there is a limited amount of resources that somehow has to be distributed to people. And we are conditioned in our society, if you guys go to Eswatini, you will see it is a radically different economy there. There's a radically disproportionate distribution of resources. And I think the beauty of what we have to remember about the gospel is that God's economy is a completely different economy. It's an economy that is not based on scarcity, but on abundance. And that's simple. We know it. We know that to be true. We hear it and we go, yeah, that rings true. But think about what that means for us, for what that means for us as a people who in the kingdom of this earth, that we are dual citizens, this kingdom that we live in, it, well, it's not really a kingdom, but this democracy that we live in, in the, the United States of America, operates on a different economy altogether. And as we're going to see here in just a few minutes, that God's saying, my ways and my thoughts are higher and distinct from your ways, not just in proportion, but in their kind, because God is coming from a completely different place, that even time and space, God is not limited to those things. So he's making an appeal to his people that I am a God who can do anything. I'm a God who has no limits, that there is no limit to what I can offer you. And specifically in this, in this passage, he's saying, there is no limit to my mercy, to my forgiveness, to the pardon that I can offer you. You think that I'm done with you as a people, but I'm ready to re-engage and I'm ready to bring you out of exile and I'm ready to do things with you that you never thought I could do as your people, as uh, the God of you, this small ragtag bunch of people at this point. See, God's economy, as we see in Isaiah chapter 40, which is the beginning of this section, remember our history lesson? The beginning of Isaiah chapter 40 talks about the way in the wilderness and God bringing down the mountains and God raising up and filling the valleys. So part of what is inherent in the economies of this earth is that there always will be some kind of privilege. That as long as we are earning money, those who are more talented, more gifted, born into families with more money, smarter, more intelligent, that there will always be people who are afforded more opportunities than others. That there will always be people who have more money than other people in the economies of this world. But in God's kingdom, what he's alluding to here in Isaiah chapter 40 is that God is about leveling 
the playing field, that God is about doing away with distinctions, that God is about doing away with privilege, that God really is a God of justice, and that God is about making a way for those who have no means to make their own way in the world, that God offers them the same thing that he offers us here in a very wealthy country. Think about this, that there is nothing that anyone can offer God that is any greater than what you can offer God. And likewise, there is nothing that you can offer God that is any more valuable than what someone else can offer to God. I mean, this, this is so different. Uh, I think this is probably gonna hit us later in the week, but we're so conditioned to being privileged and to privileging even within the church in ways that we don't think we're doing it. There are some ways in which the church has become accustomed to curating the guest list for this table. That part of what it is to be invited to a level playing field is is giving up any control that we might have of the company that we keep. Think about that. That there is nothing stopping us from accepting and responding to the invitation that God gives us. And there's really nothing that, that would repel us even conceptually aside from if we don't wanna be with the other people who are coming, right? That if this table is open and available to all, that God's offer is open and available to everyone, then why would we not respond other than if we either don't think we need it or we don't wanna be around the other people who come to this table? And I don't think that this is necessarily a huge problem in this church, but I do think that for the church at large, we have become way too accustomed to setting inherent conditions around who comes through the door, around who can respond and what their response to the Lord looks like. And guys, I'm telling you, if we're gonna be the kind of people that we're gonna see as we continue reading through this chapter, that we have to start giving up any kind of curating to the guest list of the table of the Lord. Like we sing about it. And, and I think many of us, and myself included, would say, well, yeah, that doesn't, I'm fine with whoever comes. But there are people that make us very uncomfortable. That there are people who, if they came into this place or if we were serving communion and we had to serve communion to certain people, it would make us very uncomfortable. And I wanna challenge us this morning that our job is to respond to God's invitation and to point people to his table. It's not to change them when they get there. That that is the work of the spirit, that our job is to lovingly invite people and draw people by the love of the father, by the mercy of the father and the way that we treat one another. And it is God's job to deal with people. And if we are being faithful to what we are called to do, God will deal with people. And that might mean that God will deal with you. It might mean God will deal with me, right? That that might mean God will deal with me. This is an incredibly hopeful message. And I've got, I've got a little bit strong here, so I'm gonna get back into the, to the hopeful. But I think it's important for us to be confronted with these kinds of things every once in a while, to be reminded that the reason that you and I are in this place is because God extended us pardon when we didn't deserve it. And that God extended mercy when we had nothing to offer. When we were thirsty and we were hungry and we had no money to buy, we came by his invitation. Amen? Amen. 
So let's go to verse six here. I am like, there is no use in my notes right now. This is, I'm turning into your, to, to Pastor Jade here. Uh, in, the, in the best of ways, I hope. Uh, which there are only good ways, because he will listen to this. There are only good ways, Pastor. <laughs> Woo! Where are the intercessors at? <laughs> uh, it's funny, I told him this week, we were talking about this message, and I was like, you know, Pastor, I think I'm going to try and preach a little more like you this week, and just go no notes. He was like, yeah, you should do it. So maybe I should have done it because I'm up here and I'm not using them at all. So let's read verses six through nine. So what is required for us to respond to this invitation that is attached to a promise? What is required? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Two more verses. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are my ways your ways or neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So we're gonna get there in just a second because these are perhaps some of the most used out of context verses in all of the Bible. Of course, every time Dan or I preach, I feel like one of us says, we say that, like these verses are just completely out of context, but they are in the best of ways. We're gonna, I'm gonna share in just a second. But I wanna do a little bit of exposition here. So seek the Lord while he may be found. This is, so what is required of us to respond to the invitation? And what was required of Israel while they were in exile to respond to this invitation to come and to receive of God. Repentance. Seek the Lord while he may be found and tell the wicked to forsake their ways. Now, when we hear the word wicked, every one of us thinks of something different, but I will bet most of us are thinking about things like cursing, like drinking, like seeing R-rated movies, like you fill in the blank. Uh, maybe I just think those things because I was raised as a Pentecostal. And, and there are ways in which those things can be wicked, of course. I'm not, this is not relativism. But what he is speaking about here is wicked in the sense of repelling what God is trying to do, actively opposing the work that God is trying to do in them. So it is, in a very real sense, a God, you're trying to do this, we are going this way. And God is saying, let the wicked turn from their wicked ways and seek the Lord. Seeking the Lord here is not just seeking the Lord in some general ambiguous sense, but seeking the Lord for seeking his ways and his plans and his assistance. So God is really saying, quit opposing the way that I'm trying to do things in and through you and let me do what I want to do. Let me do the things that you think are impossible for me to do through you. The things that you think you forfeited a long time ago, let me revive those and resuscitate those and do what I want to do. And it will reveal my glory and it will draw people unto me through you, which is what our calling is as a holy priesthood, right? Um, so the prophet's appeal here is for them to stop resisting God and turn toward him so that they can act so that God can act through them in the ways that he has always intended, which is basically just what I said. I want to make this point as well, and then I'm going to move on very, very quickly so we can get to some chili here. That repentance, like if we are at God's table 
And we know that God is a God of love and mercy and God is a God of judgment, but we as his people don't get to be people of judgment. Then what that means for us is that if we are at God's table, then we are forfeiting our right to be at the table of judgment, to be at the table of prosecution, to be at the table of accusation, to be at the table of privilege, to be at the table of self-sufficiency, or to be at the table of self-preservation. That if we are coming to the table of the Lord, then we have forfeit those rights. Okay, I told you I was gonna move on, so I'm gonna just say that and move on. So here, let's put the, the last verse up, Denise, uh, verse nine. That was, I just, I thought that was really powerful and it might hit one person later, so. But I wanted to, uh, so as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So typically these verses are verses that we hear to explain away things that we can't explain generally related to tragedy and suffering and difficulty in the world. And there is an element of that that is true, that the biggest, the biggest tension intellectually with being a Christ follower and being, being a follower of God is how can a good God allow bad things to happen? And guess what? I'm not gonna address that this morning. Maybe next time Chris Green's here, he'll address that. But this verse is not speaking to that. This verse is speaking to the exact opposite. It's speaking to the fact that God offers mercy and pardon to the worst, to the least of these, to the people who have affronted him the most, to the people that have opposed him the most, to the people that by this definition of wicked have been the most wicked, that God says, I offer them my endless refreshing drink. I want to offer them pardon. I still want to offer them mercy and grace. I still want to extend my invitation to all. It doesn't mean everyone will come, but my invitation goes forward to all. And there is no one that is excluded from the invitation of God. That's what this verse is talking about. Because what we see throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we see it with the disciples, we see it with the Pharisees, that they cannot wrap their minds around the plan of God and around the economy of God and that God has always, from the beginning, what Pastor Jade preached just three weeks ago, I believe, that he called Abraham to bless all of the nations of the earth. That over time, Israel started to believe the untruth about themselves, that they were special because they had done something special and that God would use them in ways that he really couldn't use anyone else. But of course, we know that ultimately God wanted to use the people of Israel to draw everyone else, all the nations of the earth unto himself. So God, the prophet is saying about God here, his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His goodness is beyond your comprehension. That's basically what he means. Denise, can we put up Ephesians 3.20? Paul would say it this way. Let's read this together. Ephesians 3.20. I am putting her through the ringer. She's sweating right now. No pressure, Denise. Ephesians 3.20. Boom. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, which this is Paul. So it's like a six verse sentence, okay? We're only gonna look at this verse. But think about what he's saying here. He's saying now to him who is God, he's, he's speaking of God, who is able to do immeasurably more than you can even ask or imagine. In other words, God's goodness 
and what God is going to do in the end is so much better than any vision or any dream that we could have of heaven or new creation or what things are gonna be like at the ultimate table of the Lord as Kirby encouraged us this morning, that God's goodness is beyond our collective imagination of what goodness could even be. That is the God that we serve and that is the God that uh, the prophet speaks of here in this passage. Uh, let's keep going with verses 10 through 13. Guys, we're cruising through this Bible study this morning. We're gonna get some chili here in just a minute. So verse 10. So we've seen an invitation. Then we have seen a what is required to respond to this invitation. What is required is to seek, to forsake your wicked ways. And then this is what the promise is. So as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish so that it yields, this is, he writes like Paul, this is such a long sentence. So that it yields seed for the sower, verse 11, and bread for the eater, verse 11. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Let's stop right here, let's pause. God is saying, the words that I spoke over you, Israel, and the words that I have spoken over you, Antioch Church, individuals as a collective, and then as the collective people of God, the words that God has spoken over us are like the water that comes down from rain or snow. So what does he mean by this? So just as, and we have our, our uh, what are you, horticulturist? <laughs> yeah. We have our, our resident land, uh, well, he's much more than a landscaper, but these guys, uh, sell lots of plants. They grow and sell lots of plants for a living. So just as the rain and the snow come down and they ultimately produce growth, so is God's word. But there's a little more in here than we would typically think just right on the surface. How many of you, right after it rains, you go out to your backyard and you sit and you stare at a blade of grass and you just want to watch it just like in the cartoons where it goes, two raindrops hit the ground and then something sprouts. Okay, but reality is not cartoon. Reality is not Bugs Bunny. That the way that growth happens in the, it takes time and it happens beneath the surface and we can't see it. Ultimately, we see the fruit of it, but we don't see it happening. And this prophet says, so it is with the word of God, that ultimately God's words, his promises are doing exactly what they were intended to do but you won't always be able to identify it. Uh, I wrote this down um, just because I think that sometimes in writing that I can say it a little bit better, uh, but it's, it's a slow, pro let me see this, this is gonna be helpful. So it is with the word of God, God's word goes forth and will not return void, meaning that God will get his will accomplished with or without our participation. But God is the God who would rather do it with us than do it without us. That there is nothing that God can't do without, with us that he can do without us. Let me, let me, I think that was a little convoluted. God can do anything he wants. 
time he wants. But he has made it so that he chooses to invite us in to participate with the work that he has promised to do. And God is saying, one way or another, my will is going to get done, Israel, but I'm choosing you, and I'm calling out you, and I'm waiting on you. And as long as it takes, I want to use you. And I think so he says to us today, there are things that I can do apart from you, but I so delight in working with you. And my word is gonna bring forth the fruit that it was called to bring forth, but I really want it to be through your life. I really wanna see my word bring forth what it is accomplishing in the earth through you because that's the kind of God that he is. He's the God that constantly invites us as we saw in the beginning part of this. It's not easy to see the effects or the growth and there is not a straight line between what God says and what we see happening around us. And I think this is one of the more difficult things for us. So many of us, we came to faith and we were promised a different life when we received Christ. And what we heard was that our circumstances would be different. We, we heard you will be blessed. And, and hear me, you are blessed. We are blessed. But what we thought that meant was that every time there would be difficulty, that we could invoke the word and that there would be the kind of fruit, which of course, it's the fruit that we expect, right? The problem is when we come to Christ, we are given a different life, but it's the life of Christ. <laughs> and if you read the life of Christ, the life of Christ was replete with suffering and being misunderstood and God being at work through him to do more than, I mean, 2,000 years later, one man 2,000 years ago has flipped the world upside down. God's word came to fruition in Christ, but it was with, it cost him something. And we, when we come to Christ, we are given a new life. It's the life of Christ and it's the way of the cross and it's the way of waiting on promises and it's the way of being misunderstood and being confronted by the Pharisees, the ones that knew the word the best, that should have responded to Christ the best, that should have received him, but they did not. And it was ultimately the Pharisees that turned him over to being crucified. So for many of us, we read verses like this and it should be hopeful but don't think that it won't come at some cost, cost of being patient, of waiting on God, of hearing his promises and it taking longer than we thought. Or maybe it doesn't take longer than you thought, but maybe the fruit of God's promises looks completely different than what you thought it was gonna look like. Or maybe it looks like seeing more blessing in the people's lives around you than seeing in your own and going, God, I'm a part of the same family. Why does this happen to them? And this happens to me. We've all asked those questions at some point, but ultimately we are given the life of Christ. And what that means is that for each and every one of us, it ends in resurrection because we believe that even death doesn't have the last word. We believe that God is the God who not only can do anything, but can do the one thing that is unfathomable, and that is to bring resurrection from death. And to Israel, this promise was dead. The promise was dead to them. And God said, I'm ready to work again. I'm ready to bring you out. I'm ready to make you a nation that right now the nations that are over you, at some point they are going to come to you 
on behalf of me, something that they could not fathom as a people at that point. So what should be our response as Antioch Church to God's invitation to what we see in this passage this morning? First, I think we should remember that everything we have is a free gift, that all that we offer to God is even offerable to God because he first gave us. One of the things that happens when we gather on Sunday mornings, and I like to, as much as I possibly can, keep this in front of us, or else anything and everything that can keep us from this place will keep us from this place. But one of the things that happens when we gather as the people of God is that we come to receive gifts from God and also to give gifts back to God and to give gifts to one another that that is one of the things, that's one of the marks of the church, that we come into this place and we offer a gift of worship to God. We offer our tithes and our offerings to God. And then we come to this table and we receive gifts from God. This is the gift that is the body and the blood of Christ broken for you. It is a gift from God back to you. And part of being the body of Christ is giving gifts to one another. Being love, being encouragement, being comfort, being strength, being wisdom and discernment for one another. That everything that we have is a gift that we are receiving from God and constantly giving back to him, to one another, and to the world. The second thing our response should be is that we should repent of any way where we have made God's thoughts to be like ours. And I would submit to you that this is not a one-time thing, that this is a daily thing, that being renewed in our mind means constantly saying, God, I'm expecting this, I want this, I'm praying for this, I'm asking for this, but if it comes in another way, Lord, I receive it. I want to receive your gifts for me, no matter how they come. I receive your love for me, no matter how it comes. God, I want a word from you. And if that means you're going to give it to me through that one person that I really don't want to give it to me, I'll hear your word through them, Lord. I'd much, I'd much prefer that in my quiet time, you speak to me directly. But God, if you choose to speak to me, from that one unsuspecting person, I receive it that way. And God, what I think about that person that I work with, not me, of course, I work with angels. <laughs> I do work with angels, but they don't work with angels. <laughs> that God, whatever it is that I think about that person, Lord, I submit my thoughts to you. And I want to think about them the way you think about them. So ultimately, this is a daily thing of turning over our mind and turning over our thoughts and receiving what God has for us. And then this is also, I think, our response is to constantly be putting our eyes forward to the day when God makes every mountain low and brings every valley high. As it says in Isaiah chapter 40, the beginning of the action, that ultimately that God, God is working now he is always at work in every situation. Everything that happens to you is not good, but God is able to bring good from anything and everything. And part of what we have to do as the church is to keep our eyes on the end, to keep our eyes on the hope of the resurrection for all. That God, just as pastor preached a few weeks ago from Hebrews chapter 11, that there will be things that we will die not seeing the fulfillment of, but it is believing that the same promises God has made to us, he will carry on with our descendants until Christ returns again and makes all things new and brings resurrection into every one of our lives. 
so this morning, I'd like to invite the communion attendants um, to get into place. And uh, David, if you would come play for me, man. And I need somebody to hold me accountable to sing doxology today. Because like the last three times I've preached, I forgot to do this. But I think that it would be, it would be important. I want to kind of go off script here. I want to read just a few verses from Isaiah chapter 40 as we come to the table. The beginning of this section, the beginning of the appeal, the beginning of the invitation, going back there after we've just read the end. Isaiah chapter 40, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand for all her sins. Hear the beauty in that, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God, that every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And as we just read, every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord will return harvest. I think church, as we live this life and hope for the end and hope for the resurrection of all, hoping for that time when Christ will come and make all things new, we must remember that the way in the wilderness and through the desert ends at a banquet table. That no matter where you are right now, that there is water for you now, but ultimately there is a banqueting table at the end through the wilderness, through the desert, that we will all end up sitting at a table with Christ, with every wrong being made right, with good being brought from every difficulty in our lives. And it is my prayer this morning that as we come to the table today, that we would be faithful to receive our daily bread in the meantime. That as we come, we would remember what Christ has done for us, but we would also remember that there is coming a day when this foretaste will be the feast in its full fruition. So church, if you would stand. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.